Everybody said, Amen. 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 Y'all can take a seat. As I said earlier, my name is Travis Lowe. I'm the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church. And I am thankful that you're here. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you at the end of our time together this evening. If it is your first time, you have kind of come at a fork in the road, so to speak, in that we've just finished about three weeks talking about God's roles for us as men and women and how we relate to one another out of that. And we're starting next week the season of Advent. And you'll hear this from me a couple times, but I am so very excited about Advent as we spend four weeks marking the time that we celebrate the first coming of Christ even as we anticipate his return. I'm fully trusting uh, that the Lord is going to take that time and use it tremendously. So let me encourage you now, and I'll continue to encourage you in this. Uh, Do your best to be here all four weeks. Uh, There's a lot of exciting things about this. Uh, One of the things that I'm super pumped on is the fact that if you talk to uh, any Episcopal or Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends of yours, they're all doing the exact same thing with the exact same verses. And so we are joining quite literally almost all of Christianity uh, in studying uh, these passages of scripture and anticipating the Lord's return as we remember uh, the birth of Jesus. And so I'm so excited about it that I failed to uh, look at my calendar and I made this mistake of thinking that it started this week. And so I ended our series last week a week early, and then I go, oh no, it's not time yet. What am I supposed to talk about? Um, so as I was kind of thinking through, well, we've, we've got this, this time together, and we're done talking about how we relate, and we're moving into Advent, what would be the best way for us to spend some time together this evening around the Lord's Word? And something that I was thinking about, you may or may not realize it, but we're at about the six-month mark of a pretty significant shift that we took as a ministry. Over the summer, we made a decision to move from taking communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the sacrament or whatever you want to call it. We moved from doing that sporadically every so often, uh, maybe once a month or once every few months, to doing it every single week. And so that was not a haphazard thing. It wasn't like we did it twice in a row and went, hey, that wasn't so bad. Let's just do it until it sucks. That, that wasn't how this happened, but rather it was a, a conscious decision. And it was born out of conversations on our leadership team and conversations with the pastors here at the church, with Mark and with Tom and with the high school and middle school pastors. It was born out of conversations with many of you and just thinking about what is the role that communion should have in our life as believers. And so we kind of couched this in a seminar that many of you were able to make it to, uh, where we just talked about, hey, here's what we believe communion is, here's why we think it's important, here's why we think it's probably a good idea that we do this weekly. But I know many of you weren't here for that, many of you couldn't make it, many of you didn't even know what this ministry was. And because it is something we do weekly, and because, hear me on this, it's really, really, really important. Because of that, I think it's important that we consistently come back and examine it and go, here's why. Here's why we come to the bread and the wine or the grape juice, since we're Baptists. Here's why we come to this every single week. When I was about, um, I was in the eighth grade, 
And I started taking guitar lessons, and I, I began to kind of pick it up a little bit. I wasn't a great guitar player, but uh, by like ninth grade, I was competent enough to play worship music, which actually is not as difficult as you might think it is. So if you'd like to get into any kind of worship, there's no business like the worship business. And so I was kind of competent enough there, but, but my guitars were awful because they were kind of beginner's guitars. It cost me like 25, 30, 75 bucks, which is not enough to stand on a stage uh, without what you're playing sounding like a fart coming through the speakers. And so I got to the point to where I was like, you know what, I'm going to save up, I'm going to buy a really nice guitar in 13, 14-year-old Travis's mind, which cost a couple hundred dollars. And so by end of freshman year to beginning of sophomore year, I'd saved up enough money, and I'd bought this three or $400 guitar, I think it was like a Fender Telecaster uh, Mexican. So it was made in Mexico, which means it's not quite as nice as the nicer ones, but it's okay. Um, and this became my prized possession. It was the most expensive thing I owned at that point in my life. I'm going to be honest, I didn't have a job then, so I don't actually know how I acquired money to save to pay for it. Part of me wonders if my parents just like pity bought it for me and told me that I'd earned it. I, I have no idea. But I know that it was, it was profoundly valuable to me. And so it was to the point that I didn't let people touch it, even if they were better guitar players than me. I was scared to play it standing up because I didn't want to bump it against something. I almost didn't even want to take it out of its case. I just wanted to sit in my bed and just ponder the fact that I owned it. It was like Gollum with the ring in Lord of the Rings, where I was just obsessed with this thing. And so I would clean it constantly. I would always change the strings. I would always check the neck and be like, oh my gosh, the neck's warping, the neck's warping. It must have been because I left it in the sunlight. Like I was just paranoid about this thing. And there came a point where I found some scratches on the back of it. And because I was so obsessive about it, I assumed that it couldn't have been me that did it. It had to have been my brother, who was like nine years old at the time. And I was going to find a way to make him pay for it. And so it was sadistic. It was stupid. And it was actually my belt buckle that scratched it. And so it was my fault anyways. But over time, as it grew more familiar, it wasn't shiny and it wasn't new, I started caring less and less and less. And I, I, I mean, I played in punk rock bands in high school, and so I, by the time I didn't care about it anymore, I was punching it and splitting my hand open and bleeding all over it and not cleaning it off and throwing it across the room and hitting people in the face with it, and I just, I did not care about this thing anymore. It's not that it wasn't important, it's not that I didn't need it to do what I wanted to do, but it just didn't have the value that it had Originally, and then there came a point where I left it in somebody's car and I couldn't find it. And I had a panic attack because I couldn't afford another one because I can't even remember how I afforded the first one. And it all of a sudden, the value was rekindled for me. And so I found it and I cleaned the blood off of it and I held it gently and said, I'll never leave you again. I'm so sorry. And and it, it took me being separated to realize the value of it because familiarity had caused me to grow numb to it. The reality is the thing itself didn't cease to be valuable. I stopped recognizing it for what it was. And here's my fear, one of my fears, as we take communion weekly here, or wherever you go, if your church takes communion weekly, my fear is that because of the familiarity of the fact that, oh yeah, this is what happens after worship, you would grow numb to the profound weight of what it is. Because it is profoundly important. It is not to be taken lightly and cast aside or left in somebody's car. It's important and it's serious and it's weighty. 
But what can happen is, is if we can liken communion to a, a many-sided jewel, if I can use Jonathan Edwards' language, we look at one side of it for so long that we go, ah, that's fine, that's kind of boring, but fail to recognize that there's many more sides to what it is. And so unless we hold it in front of us and continually turn it and consider the, the multifaceted reality of the fact that Jesus has given it to us for a reason, we will grow numb to something that we should not be numb to. And we'll grow cold towards something that is meant to be a fire in our Christian lives. To give you an idea of, of the history of communion, from pretty much the point of the apostles, so like 20, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, all these rumors start spreading about Christians in the Roman Empire. And Christianity was small, only a couple thousand people across the known world. And so it's easy to spread rumors because you'll probably never meet a Christian to tell you that the rumors are wrong. So the rumors included these terrible things like Christians had this idea that slaves were equal to their masters. The world caught up with that and realized the Christians were right. Our Christians had this, this way of upsetting society by refusing to call Caesar God. Refusing to refer to Caesar as Lord, but saying instead, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. I will honor him as my leader, but I will not worship him as a God. But the, the most vicious of the rumors, Tacitus actually references this. He's a, he's a Roman historian. One of the most vicious rumors about Christians that circulated in the ancient world is that we were cannibals. Which sounds kind of funny. But here's how that started. Every single solitary time Christians got together, they took communion. And so when they invited their friends, they said, you're not a Christian, you can't do this. So you can go hang out in the corner or whatever, but this is for Christians only. And the people would go, why can't we do it? They say, this is my body, this is my blood. It must be blood, that's why. They don't want us to know. They don't want us to know their secret. It looks like bread, but maybe they've got little pieces of Romans hidden in the bread. Like, and and, and it, started to, it started to circulate. But here's why it circulated, because it was so important that it was a mark of Christianity. Christians do this. It's foundational to what we do when we gather as Christians. By the time of the church fathers, 75 years later, they refer to it as the medicine of immortality. By the time of St. Augustine, he calls it the gospel, in, uh, the gospel preached in images. He says the gospel's preached twice in a service, when scriptures opened up and expounded and when Christians take communion. It's a visual preaching of the gospel. By the time of the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all the people involved in it are asking the question, what makes something a church and not just a social club? And they come down to these three things. One, the Bible is preached when people gather. Two, there's church discipline and a call to repentance. Three, they take communion and they practice baptism. I said, a church without that last thing is like a square with only three sides. You can kind of make it out, but it's not what it claims to be. And on and on and on we can go. Communion is profoundly important to who we are as Christians. And I fear that we've lost it. I fear that we will lose it. I fear that we will fail to recognize this is serious. It's weighty. And it should be something that we rejoice in having the opportunity to do. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. And to put us in context, you've probably heard this scripture read a, a number of times if you've been to uh, any kind of a communion service. We read it almost every week here. But let me put it in context for you. Because the situation Paul's speaking into is not so far from the Christianity that we are in in these days. Paul's heard rumors concerning the Corinthians, especially how they handle communion. 
the, the first rumor is that for them, communion is just a way to kind of be an extra meal if they get hungry. And so they eat a ton of the bread because they're hungry. And so I can imagine Corinthians walking in and going, man, I skipped lunch. Today would be a great time to take communion, don't you think? And so that's the first thing. But, but then you've got the people who go, I've had a terrible week. I would love to drink this away. Wouldn't it be awesome if we took communion tonight? And I'll bear the burden of having the largest cup and so-and-so's cupboard. And so, so they looked at it and they went, oh, man, free meal. I can get trashed if I want because the wine is flowing. And they failed to recognize how serious and how weighty it was. And so here's what Paul does, and this is what we're looking at. Paul says, the reason you don't take it seriously is you don't understand what it is. The reason you take it seriously is because you have no idea what you're doing. It's like using a diamond as a doorstop. It shows that you just don't get it. And if you did get it, there's no way you would be doing this because it is so profoundly serious. And so in light of this, Paul says, let me explain to you what's happening and why you're doing this and why it's serious and why it's a bad idea to turn this into golden corral with wine and bread and party it up and eat everything in the house. So this is what he says in verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So Paul begins like this. I receive from the Lord what I deliver also to you. And most people would agree, I guess we can't say with any certainty, that during Jesus' earthly ministry, Paul was off doing something else. They were probably roughly the same age. Maybe he was in like a Pharisaic school. Maybe he was uh, teaching in a synagogue. But it's not likely that pre-crucifixion, Paul ever actually encountered Jesus. Paul's likely first encounter with Jesus is when Jesus knocks him off of a horse and causes him to go blind, which is a great starting point for a beautiful friendship. I'm the guy who blinded you and gave you like a a broken tailbone. Um, And so this is his first encounter with Christ, but he nonetheless says, I received this. What I'm telling you to do, it came from Jesus. So whether Christ appeared to him again, which wouldn't surprise me, um, or whether one of the apostles said, hey, um, just so you know, newly christened apostle Paul, uh, Jesus said this was really important, so I should probably tell you about this. But regardless, here's, here's what Paul says. This came from Christ. I received this from the Lord. So this isn't Paul saying, hey, here's a prescription for how to have a really nice gathering time in your communion. This might work, this might not. Saying, no, this, this, is, this is from the top dog. This is a top-down command. It's interesting, when you look at the Last Supper where Jesus institutes communion, he doesn't give you an option. He doesn't say, try this. See how it works for you. He takes the cup, he takes the bread, he says, as often as you drink of this and you eat of this, do it in remembrance of me. It is not a suggestion, it is a command. 
And it's not something that we just picked up at a conference and thought it might work or something that we read in like a Tim Keller book or something that Matt Chandler mentioned and we go, ah, yeah, why not? Could work for us. If it doesn't work, whatever, screw that. We'll do something else and we'll fill the time with something cool like funny videos. It is a commandment from Jesus. He doesn't say think about this. He says do it. So that's reason enough to do it if you believe that Jesus is Lord. The interesting thing about commandments, um, and this is something that regardless of how you feel about him, uh, old President W. might be a little illustrative in. Uh, my history teacher in high school told me that he had a plaque on his desk that said the buck stops here. Now, the implication being that no matter who was in the chain of command carrying out the orders that he issued, ultimately, he's responsible for what happens. And so I want you to get this. When Nick or when Corey or when Reese or when Marcus or anybody comes up here and leads us in taking communion, it's ultimately not them doing it. It's them doing what Jesus told them to do. The buck doesn't stop with Nick or me or Corey. It stops with Christ. We are obeying a commandment from the Lord here. But Jesus goes on to explain why it's important, and Paul expounds on this in his letter. He says that on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on, he says the same thing of the cup. This cup is my blood in the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. When we talk about communion, it forces us to face in three different directions. Uh, You can write these down if you are taking notes. Communion causes us to look backwards, causes us to look forwards, and it causes us to look at ourselves now. But the first point in this text, the one that Jesus makes, is that we do this in remembrance When you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you'll be shocked how many times God warns people not to forget. Uh, Build a monument to remind yourselves. Pass this on to your children. Don't let them forget. Remember that I am the Lord who brought you out from Egypt. In the Psalms, uh, you know, worship the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits. You go to Jude. Remember that Jesus, who led a people out of the land of Israel, later on destroyed those who did not believe. On and on and on and on. Remember, 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 remember. Don't forget this. Write it down so you don't forget. Remember, the whole of Scripture is God saying, hey, these things happen. You should remember them so you don't forget. Why is that? Because when we sin, it comes from two places. One is unbelief. Now, that's not to say that you don't believe in God. But when we do something God has commanded us not to, essentially what we say is, I don't trust that what you've told me is actually right. But the second source of sin is forgetfulness. The beginning of of every bad choice is either you saying what God said to do is not actually what I ought to do, or you forgetting who you are in Christ and acting as though you are no longer in Christ. This is why Paul keeps reminding people throughout his letters, remember you're in Christ, you're not in the world, you're not in Adam, you're not that anymore, don't forget who you are. Because as soon as you forget, you begin to live in accordance with something you're not. Jesus knows we are are forgetful. We sing this hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount. There's a line in it that I think is pretty all right that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
you could probably rephrase that and still capture the spirit of it and say, prone to forgetfulness. Lord, I feel it. Jesus recognizes that we forget, and when we forget, we wander. And so he says, remember. Remember the Son of God crucified. Remember the fact that he did not hang for his sins, he hung for your sins. Remember the fact that it was his submission that gives you the right to call God Father. Remember the fact that because you're united with him, you died on that cross with Jesus. Remember, don't forget, because as soon as you forget, you start acting like somebody who you're not. What's the, the I'm, this is me being confessional here, I'm, I'm remembering this Kanye song where he says, I guess I should have forgot where I came from. Um, but the reality is we forget all the time. We forget who we are. And so Christ says, remember, do this. Here's something to help you remember who you are, where you came from, what I've done, how I see you. Remember. But it's not just remembering, right? Because we can remember on our own. We can, we can say, well, I'm going to draw a picture of Jesus on my wall, and every time I see it, I'll remember. And that's, that's fine. Um, but Jesus gives us specific ways that he says, these are what are to remind you. I remember when I was in high school, stupid Travis thought this was the coolest thing in the world, and I've learned a lot since then, so don't judge me. But I remember hearing about a pastor somewhere in the U.S., and he was a youth pastor, and he took... Uh, his students went to like the camp retreat or whatever and they're sitting around the fire singing Kumbaya or doing whatever you do at camp retreats around the fire. And he pulls out a bag of apples and he says, guys, we're going to take communion. <laughs> and they go, what? And he says, you can take communion with anything as long as you remember. So here's some apples. That's so wrong. <laughs> it's not even wrong. It's unbelievable. Jesus didn't pick bread and wine because it was just something nearby, right? You can't substitute dirt and olive oil for bread and wine and think it's the same thing. An apple is not the same thing as what Jesus gave us because the things that he gave us, he gave us for a reason. They're to remind us of things that are specific. In the ancient world, wine is a symbol of abundance. Wine is a symbol of joy. Wine is a symbol of God's favor, God's provision, God's blessing on a people. It's the reason that Jesus' first miracle is to turn water into wine because he says, I've come to bring God's favor back to man that was lost in the fall. And so when Jesus holds up the cup of wine or grape juice, however you want to use it, he's saying, remember that it's my blood that has brought you peace and joy and favor again with God. Remember that it's my blood shed that becomes the reason that you call God Father. Becomes the reason that you can rejoice and you can have peace and you can celebrate in spite of circumstances. It's not incidental. It's not just whatever was on hand and Jesus goes, ah, I guess I'll use this. Remember. No, it's intentional. It's significant. It is reminding you of something important, which is that God loves you. That God loves you enough that through the blood of Christ, he would restore joy to a broken and fractured humanity. He holds up the bread. Again, not incidental. Well, we don't have anything cool like pizza, so I guess we've got bread. In the ancient world, right, bread is actually kind of foundational to life. 
Now, we live in the world of soccer moms who avoid carbs like the plague. Uh, the ancient world, not so. <laughs> right? So, so none of the disciples were like, I'm actually trying to cut my carbs. So I'll remember. You just hold it up, and I'll remember. And then on my cheat day, I'll, I'll do, some, do some partaking. Um, Jesus has the bread for a reason, because it is foundational for survival in the world in which he lives. There's the account of Elijah or Elisha and the widow, and all she has left is a little bit of grain to make one more loaf of bread to feed her family. Because it is foundational to living. And, and it still kind of lingers in our culture, right? We, we talk about, we joke about prison food being like bread and water. Because that's basically just what's necessary to keep you alive. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am necessary for your life. As necessary as this bread is to keep you alive, so too I am this necessary for you. I am foundational. There is no life apart from me. I am the bread of life. So no, apples don't work because it doesn't say the same thing. And Jesus holds it up. He says, this is my body. Everything that I am and everything that I've done is the source of your life. So let me ask you a question. When you take communion, maybe this would be worth doing, taking stock and saying, has Christ been my life this week? Has he been foundational to who I am? Has he been foundational to my life and my livelihood, or has he been secondary? Is God my co-pilot, or is he the pilot? It's a terrible name for a book if you're trying to teach sound doctrine, by the way. Um, Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in this wine, remember that I have brought you joy and I have brought God's love and favor and abundance upon you that was lost in the fall. And remember in this bread that I am the very source of your life. So, remember, we look backwards when we take communion. Paul goes on. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread, you drink of this cup, and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So communion first looks backward. Second communion looks forward. It anticipates something. Um, I can't tell you how hopeless Christians appear on Facebook. <laughs> Without being mean. It's like the fact that Starbucks changed their cups means Jesus isn't on his throne anymore. It's like we don't like the president and therefore Jesus isn't Lord of history anymore. It's like a couple laws change and Christ hasn't been given dominion over everything in earth and above the earth and under it. Paul says this in his letters, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But so often we as Christians live as though there is no hope unless culture is entirely with us. But I want you to understand this. Jesus' work didn't end with the resurrection and the ascension. It ends with the second coming. And we don't think about that very often anymore because we're so fixated on dying and going to heaven that we forget that the end game of the Christian life is not to die and go to heaven. The end game is for Christ to return and bring heaven back to that which is broken in the fall. It's to restore the new heavens and the new earth. And that's not here yet. And so we can look at culture and we can lament the person that we voted for maybe didn't make it or, or maybe Starbucks changed their cups. Who stinking cares? But, but we look at that. We don't mourn 
As though Jesus isn't Lord of history. We recognize Jesus' work in history is not done. Every time we take communion, we say Christ's work began and we remember it, but we anticipate the finishing of it. And so whether I have a discouraging message on any given Sunday night, maybe about our sinfulness or our need for repentance or God's judgment, we always leave with hope. Because when we take communion, we don't just remember, we anticipate. Jesus wins at the end. And no matter how bleak the circumstances are, we're reminded in the bread and the wine that Jesus wins. Ultimately, um, there's probably something even a little bit more profound. Even as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, Jesus actually says when he institutes the the bread and the wine, he, he says... I won't drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, and the, the text that we read from in Revelation this evening is actually called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Uh, you see, when kings conquered and when kings in the ancient world were victorious, uh, it wasn't just to come back and go, all right, back to the plow, good job, soldier. No, they celebrated. They celebrated the victory of their king. They had feasts sometimes for days. When weddings happened, There were feasts for days and days and days. There was celebration. What Revelation tells us is that when Jesus finishes his work of restoring all things, there is a feast. And as spiritually present as Christ is now, when you drink of the cup and you partake of the bread, he will be physically present then. And your faith will be sight. And Jesus will say, well, I have... Wasn't going to drink this until it was uh, me coming again in my father's kingdom. I guess it's this time. The first alcohol I'm going to have is with Jesus. It's awesome. I don't drink in case that didn't come across. Um, so the first time I drink is with Jesus. And, and I'm okay with that. Because, because as much as he meets with us now, he meets with us bodily. The body that was pierced. The body that was broken. The body that the bread and wine symbolizes will be there and your faith will be sight. And every time you take communion, it's meant to remind you of that. No matter how dark your circumstances. So we look forward. We don't live as those without hope. Every time we come to the table, we remind ourselves that what Jesus has started, he's going to finish. And we remind ourselves. So then Paul goes on. Verse 27 Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and who drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is where it gets a little less romantic and a lot more terrifying. Because as we look back and remember what Jesus did and we look forward and remember or anticipate what he's going to do, communion asks us to examine ourselves and face today and say, where are you right now? Because we're looking back and remembering Jesus' atoning work. And Paul asks you to go, are you living in light of that? Or are you just taking communion flippantly? Does your life actually bear witness to the fact that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins and called you to holiness and that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead? Or is this just something you're doing as a passing ritual? And Paul calls us to repentance before communion. 
There's a reason that things are set up the way they are on Sunday nights. Uh, rather than passing the bread and the grape juice so that you feel obligated to take it so the person next to you doesn't wonder what terrible sin you've committed this week, um, you can come up at your own pace, and the hope is that many people are coming and going, and so nobody notices other than the people who have chosen to abstain. But there's meant to be a weight behind that. When you have to say, Jesus has prepared the feast, and because of what I've done, I can't come to it, that should weigh heavily on you. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a pastor, he's, I think he's Presbyterian, uh, and he's talking about the weight and the significance of communion when we take it, and he talked about uh, an instance where he was getting ready to preach, and somebody from his church came to him, a husband, uh, and kind of confided in him. He was like, you know, I think I'm probably going to leave my wife, and I'm not sorry about it, so this will probably be my last Sunday. And something along those lines, and the pastor responded, well, that's awful. I actually have to be up there in about two minutes, so I'm asking you to sit in the service, and I'm asking you to not take communion. Yeah, that's fine, whatever. And the man sat in the pew, and as the bread and the wine passed him by, it was only then that the weight of what he was doing sank in. He said, Jesus has prepared a feast, and I can't come to it, and it's not Jesus' fault, it's mine. Because I've done something to remove myself. Not from salvation, but from right standing. He came to repentance partially because of that. Listen, I say this to you as somebody who has sat in the back and had to abstain. And had to feel the weight of the fact that when I sin, it's a step back from the table rather than a step forward to celebrate. So as much as we look back and as much as we look forward... Paul says, don't do this in an unworthy manner. Look at yourself now. And does your life reflect the truths of what you remember and what you anticipate? So there's a weightiness here. But this is the beautiful thing, is is the Christian life is not one that's marked by one act of repentance when somebody tells you to pray the prayer and then a life of doing whatever the heck you stink and want. It's a life of repentance. And the beauty is that in Christ, God's answer to your asking for forgiveness is always yes. Rosaria Butterfield was a genders study professor and actually fairly outspoken atheist at Rutgers University for most of the 90s. She became an evangelical Christian in the early 2000s. And part of that conversion process happened because she, was, she had written a very angry letter to the local paper, and a pastor had responded to her and said, you know what, I think you might not be getting us fully. Would you like to come over for dinner, and we can just kind of talk about what what I actually think? And so she came over, and the pastor said, do you mind if we pray before dinner? And she said, yeah, that's fine. And in front of her, in addition to praying, he repented to God of all of his sins. I said, Father, forgive me. I haven't loved my wife like I should have this week. Father, forgive me. I was short with my kids. Father, and, and in front of her, he repents. And she said that was the first step in many steps towards the Lord breaking down the walls that she had erected because she finally saw Christians who held themselves to the same standards that they held everybody else. There is beauty and there's power in repentance. My hope is that week in and week out, you would come to the table 
and you would look back and you would thank God for what he's accomplished in Christ. You would look forward as somebody who has a hope despite what you've walked in here carrying. And you would look in the mirror and you would repent and be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are you're gracious to give us things like this. God, we are so forgetful. We don't remember as we ought to. Lord, we've sinned against you. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. God, I pray that our repentance is sincere. But God, I'm thankful to know that despite how many times we fail, the answer to our cries for forgiveness is always yes in Jesus. God, I pray that as we come to your table now, having talked in greater depth than we normally do about how important it is, God, I I pray that we would feel the weight um, that you have prepared a feast, spiritually speaking, and that we would long for the day when we can share this with you in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we pray that you meet with us now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you convict us and that you comfort us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.